I'm Blair Palmer and welcome to the Punks in Suits podcast, bringing the leadership thinking, beliefs, philosophies and practices behind punky, startup-y next stage businesses to you, even if your company's not quite there yet. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Punks in Suits podcast. I hope you're very well. Today's show is an interview I did a couple of weeks ago with a new friend, a guy called Charlie Efford. Charlie is a management consultant and coach. He had a very conventional beginning in some ways. He went to Sandhurst, Cambridge, he joined the Royal Engineers, and that was all followed by 25 years in the consulting world working with large corporates. We first met because of our shared interest in the work of Frederick Leloux and his book, Reinventing Organisations. In it, Leloux explains the historical roots of the structure of business, why companies are organised the way they're organised, the beliefs that underpin that organisation. And in the book, Leloux shares his insights about a range of new types of organisations that he calls teal, which work in a very different way to the kinds of organisations that most of us are used to. They are self-managing, they are largely non-hierarchical, they're purpose-driven, they're very different to the, the sort of big business world that is kind of ubiquitous today. So as I talked to Charlie originally, we got into some other stuff as well about spiritual practice and even what comes after Teal. And I wanted to share that conversation with you. So we arranged to speak again and this time we recorded ourselves. And that is what today's show is. If you're interested in alternatives to the conventional hierarchy, this is a really good introduction to Teal concepts. And if you're curious about what comes after Teal, We cover that a bit too. And of course, Charlie's life story and how he came to be doing the work he's doing today. So without further ado, here's our conversation. The show today really comes out of a conversation that you and I were having during which I thought, wow, I just, I wish I could record this conversation and stick it on the internet and people could hear the kind of conversations that I'm having with people on a quite regular basis. And then I thought, hang on a minute, I can do that because I've got a podcast. So that's why we're kind of re, yeah, I know, convenient. So that's why we're rerunning this conversation, although I'm sure that it will take a different form than it did the first time around. I think that's the beauty of this kind of new world, that it's emerging and it's new. And if you try and get your head around it and pin it down and define it and categorise it and sell it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't want to be treated like that. It needs to emerge and, and you know, just see what comes. Exactly. So really, I have no idea where we're going to go today, but I do have a few a few areas that I'd like us to cover. So okay, we're both interested in the future of business and the possibility of moving away from an industrial age notion about how organizations work and that's definitely something we're we're going to be talking about but but your background is in the army and there are lots of assumptions about leadership in the army very few of which have got to do with being hugely kind of forward thinking and uh, you know uh, about feelings and emotions and all of this. So maybe we can go back to your earliest experiences of leadership and talk about what leadership is actually like in the army. 
Mm, that's a good place to start. And you're taking me back a few years now as well. What I remember was that, um, that the Santos motto was serve to lead. And they were words at first, they were printed on my cap badge, they were printed all over the place in fact. But once I'd actually had a troop of men to look after, the, the troops about 30 to 35 people, then I really started to get what it meant. And, it, and the deal was that um, we all had different jobs and yes, there was a rank structure and yes, they had to salute me and I had to salute them back. But when we got down to it, we were pretty much all on equal footing, just doing different jobs. And so my job was really to make sure they had what they needed so they could get the work done. And if I did that, and I could only do it by really caring about them, and I did, it mattered to me that about their careers and where they were going and what they were doing. Um, and when I did that, a funny thing happened. They started to look after me. And the colleagues of mine who were a bit stiff and you know relied on giving orders and giving commands didn't seem to get on quite as well. So yes, I had a job and I was out front and they expected me to make decisions and do things. But really, when I worked with them and in a more collaborative way, we got things done much better. So it's very different to what I learned and saw afterwards in the corporate world. You know, this won't come as a surprise to anyone who has a military background, because I've been asking military people about this for a long time. But for anyone who, who doesn't have that background, I think this will be a massive surprise. You know, we, we see the saluting and we see the rank and we see the very, very strict hierarchy. And from the outside, it looks like this is, you know, it's required because, you know, in the, in the battlefield, you can't have collaboration. You can't have a discussion about it. You can't go by consensus. And yet, every time I speak to anyone who has a military background, they say, actually, it's a lot about collaboration and a lot about consensus and a lot about thinking and talking together and connecting, which is all the stuff that, that we don't associate with the army. Yeah, it's a real contradiction. Um, they have this structure which has been set up to, to allow things to be done. And on the surface, the officers, and I was the captain when I left, have a lot of privilege. We live in a nice mess, it's different to the sergeant's mess, which is different to the corporals and where the lads live. And we get waited on and looked after. But once we go out and exercise in the field, then I wouldn't have dreamt of eating until all my soldiers had gone through and had what they needed. And I kind of had what was left. And most of my friends were exactly the same. And that wasn't something we, we just did because it, did it because we wanted to, because it was the way things were. And actually, I cared about the men. Um, and that was one way I was showing it. So, you know, when we got back to barracks after an exercise, I'd make sure they were okay first, and then I'd look after myself. And that kind of um, willingness to put other people first, that's, again, I didn't see that in the corporate world in quite the same way. And it was something about my being and who I was. Um, and the army taught me that. I appreciate, you know, it was part of the system and the way it worked. And I think they'd done it through hard experience, but it really did make a difference. So why is it different then? Why, why is that possible despite the hierarchy in the military? Why is that possible? Whereas in corporate world, when you put that structure, that hierarchy in place, it doesn't work out the same way. It, it does, it just does the kind of the privilege bit. It doesn't do the 
the caring bit and the, the serving to lead bit. I guess this is kind of links me back into um, Frederick Laloux's book, Reinventing Organisations. The, the kind of culture and the mindset in those two different worlds really sets you up to do different things. So the military, you know, it, it's having to innovate very quickly at the moment, but the, the army I joined was still really pretty standard. And it was all about keeping everything stable and working. And so providing people knew their places and did their jobs, it all worked. Um, and one of the best ways to make that happen, I mean, it evolved to a stage where looking after people actually made sense. But in a corporate world, which is about competition and achievement and you know, getting the best, get, getting things over on people, being the first or the biggest or the best, which really what the I army mean, wasn't, there's was nothing unlike that at all. It wasn't about it. Um, in, in that world, people become resources to help you get to from A to B rather than the reason why you're getting from A to B. So I think it's the cultural, it's the way the world is, or the world is seen in those two different environments that explains the difference. So you went into corporate world afterwards and into consultancy. What was that like? What was the, the sort of culture shock that you experienced at that point? Oh, I came out at 28 feeling as though I could do anything. And I very re soon realised that in the corporate world, unless you'd had the experience in certain fields, they didn't really care about that. <laughs> so it was a little bit frustrating at first. And I, I spent a year managing an antique centre. Um, look fun I have no idea what to do next it was like leaving school again at 18 but, but I was 28 and then I spent a year recruiting and that was a bit more interesting I was in London and it's more exciting but again it was kind you know apologies to all the recruiters out there I, I got bored stiff because I was doing the same thing all the time and then I joined Hay the Hay group and got into a more interesting variety of consulting and suddenly I was being stretched um, and Looking back, and I don't think I made this conscious decision at the time, but looking back, it dropped me right into the world of understanding and dealing with people. Um, so I did their pay and grading stuff. I got into competencies and people's behaviours. That took me into selection development. And at that point, I was really starting to have to think about what made people tick. Um, I landed into coaching by accident with a few clients saying, can you talk to somebody for me? And I kind of did that and enjoyed it. Um, Eventually, people started, I quite enjoyed that, and people started bursting into tears on me, so I ended up doing a counselling course as well. So it's been a strange old journey, really, and I've sort of followed this from being, you know, engineering um, in the army, which is kind of quite macho and rigid, and sort of right through to sitting in a room with someone talking about why they're depressed and or worse, really. It's been a, I feel very balanced in both camps. Yeah, it is interesting that, that you've done that. And from the conversation we had before, you said that um, you realised on that journey that you needed to become more conscious in order to do the work. And I, I was thinking about that after, and I was thinking, I wonder what that, I've made an assumption about what that means to become more conscious. Maybe you can explain what, what it was that triggered that, that thought and then what it actually means to become, to become more conscious. There was a point about 10, 12 years ago, something like that time. 
So it was sort of classic early 40s when people suddenly get a sort of either a sort of meaning of life shock or <laughs> something. A little bit about that. So I was, when I did the counselling, I realised afterwards that it was as much for me as it was for teaching me how to help other people. Being in an environment where there were people willing to listen to me and hold a space for me. And suddenly the, the, the usual barriers that exist in daily life just weren't there. Um, and I spent a few years crying my eyes out really because people listened to me and I kind of got to grips with where I was and all the things that were upsetting me. But it gave me a lot more clarity about where I was and what was going on. Um, and once I got that, you know, things I was unhappy about suddenly looked a bit different. So I ended up in the space of about three or four years changing jobs. Um, I realised I was married to the wrong person, so that came to a close. Um, and it felt a little bit brutal doing that, but it, I, I was only becoming half a person where I was, and I needed to make these changes to be all of me, really. That's what it felt like. So I did it as kind of gently as I could, but it was still quite hard. Um, I think it was that kind of awakening process when I suddenly thought, well, kind of, I've sort of moved all the blocks around. Now what do I do with this my life now that I've got to this stage? And so I sort of put these various things I'd done together. So there was a bit about leadership from the army. I'd been consulting for about 15 years at this point. So there was a lot of understanding of the corporate world. Um, there was this counseling bit about people. And then there's a bit that's always been in the background, but suddenly had a chance to shine, which was my kind of, I'm going to call it my spiritual side, but what I mean by that is, um, you know, kind of why are we here? You know, what's this wonderful life all about? You know, what goes on behind the scenes? What happens when you die? And asking all those kind of questions. And it just put a lot of daily stuff into a very different perspective. So it's being conscious then, it's really uh, just waking up. It was like step, step, rising 50 foot in the air and suddenly being able to see everything in, in a very different way. It's so interesting that because, you know, as I've been interviewing people and I knew this from my my coaching as well, but it's become more um, more clear as I've been interviewing people for this show that from a lot of the people that I've spoken to, there have been these moments, sometimes just one big uh, sort of breakdown moment, sometimes a few through a, a series, a number of years um, where things seemed either quite bleak or where it was just impossible to carry on as they were or some sort of trigger. I, I, I sort of heard it when, when you said, you know, people were listening to me and that allowed me to talk about the things that I was unhappy about and I cried for a long time. Um, yeah. It seems like there has to be this moment or these moments. And when I, when I look at people that do the kind of work that, that we're doing, but that don't that haven't gone to that place i just wonder how how deeply they are able to work with people because if you're not willing to go to that place yourself or if you deny that that place exists in yourself yeah well, i'm just a happy jolly person i don't if you come from that place and you're not willing <laughs> yes. to put your underneath and really go oh god it's oh, messy really messy in there you know then that does make it more difficult, maybe even makes it impossible for you to go to those places with your clients. 
I'll sort of refer back to the counselling work that I did. It was all based on Carl Rogers' person-centred approach. And in a nutshell, what he said was that um, if you can, if you believe that people really got everything they need to grow already within them, then all you have to do is create the right conditions. And three important things that make, went a long way to creating those right conditions were being willing to really listen to somebody and let them know that you've heard them. So I guess empathy. But it really meant putting yourself in their shoes and, and sticking aside all your own interpretations of how you would react to what they were facing and just understanding how they were facing it. Um, being willing to be yourself. So whatever you were experiencing and aware of, um, sharing that appropriately and not sort of sugarcoating it and giving it straight. And the third bit was really um, valuing and prizing, um, not judging, accepting the person that you were with. And that's really hard because, you know, and I've got my hand up for this one as well. I've, I've got prejudices as things that will rattle my boat and I, they're still there and they pop up, but I'm just aware when they're happening there. And so I found I've become more, a bit calmer, a bit more accepting, more tolerant. And certainly when things happen, I don't rush the judgment. I'm more interested to listen and sort of understand them, you know, what's going on here. And I found if you value people, then they've kind of got all they need to grow. And if they're growing, then we're all benefiting. And so the process continues. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're describing leadership there. You know, if, we, if we're thinking yeah. about, so uh, before I was saying, or people that do the kind of work that we do, but actually if we're talking about really listening, putting yourself in the other person's shoes, being willing to be yourself and sharing yourself with other people and valuing and prizing the other person, then that's what more could we ask of leaders really, that they would embody that. That's spot on Blair, I think. Um, I mean, if I was gonna summarize a shift in leadership that I'm seeing, it's the shift from being, I'm in charge and I've got to tell you what to do to actually it's my job to hold a space for you. If I can do that well, then you know, you're free to do what needs to be done. So that brings us quite neatly onto something I definitely wanted to talk to you about, <laughs> which, is, which is Frederick Leloux and others. I mean, he wasn't the only one to, to talk about this, this kind of work, but the, the, the way that business and organisations are changing and what, what is next. Um, and I wonder if it might be useful to, to go back a little bit in time and talk about, because not everyone who's listening to this will be aware of Frederick Leloux's work, and um, it might just be really useful to go back and to talk about, well, what, because organisations haven't always looked the way they look today. I mean, we, we kind of fall into a trap of thinking that they are, that they have done, and that you can tweak them and you can run a culture change program and you can, you know, introduce a coaching culture or whatever is the latest thing. But basically organizations look like this and always are going to look like this, but actually they haven't always looked like this. And, and I'm not convinced. And I, I know you agree with this. I'm not convinced that they're going to look like this in future. So let's, should we go back? Should we go back in time and talk about what, what, how things all started? Well, I think one of the genius parts of Frederick Alou's book was that he, he hung this whole sort of process of organizational development onto our evolution as human beings. 
And that was the bit which made, suddenly made sense of all the nice thoughts I was thinking, which felt a bit fluffy, but suddenly there was something hard and real which brought them to life. So he kind of goes back, and I'm going to skip over this fairly quickly. There's, there's loads more in the book if you want to have a look. Um, so the days when we were living in tribes, and, and living in a tribe was a much better place to be than a, a small hunter-gatherer family. And tribes looked after each other. There was a kind of division of labour, but they relied on having a boss or a leader, usually a man, although not always. Um, and the tribe kind of functioned, but they could only grow to a certain size because there's a limit to how many people one person could kind of get their hands around. And usually they rule a combination of being fairly strong, sometimes fear. Um, if you look at the mafia today, that's probably a very typical tribal type organization. <clears throat> um, and so there was a much, it was a huge advance on where we had been, but they were very limiting in terms of they couldn't really build much more than a village because beyond that, people would break away and kind of form their own tribes. So then came along civilization. Um, and this probably goes back a couple of thousand years, I'm guessing. Um, Maybe even more if you think back to oh, civilizations and, and Greek civilizations. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So uh, apologies for all the historians out there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I guess, you know, what you had then was is sort of like you could build a city but if you then had formal structures rather than a boss and people who reported to a boss um, and ranks and titles and everyone knew their place then you could scale that and once you could scale it you could do things on a much much larger scale so you could farm you could have armies you could build cities and the church could be established and all of those kind of things and so again it was a huge step on from living in a tribe um, and the big shift was that people then, uh, you know, authority was vested in, in job titles rather than personalities. That makes sense. So huge advances. But the, the premise of the whole structure was that everything should stay the same. And so the whole thing was geared about keeping things the same for the future. So stability was very important. And of course, not much changed. So I guess if you looked at a medieval city it probably wasn't that much different than a, than a sort of greek city even though the technology has changed it probably wouldn't have felt much different to, and again i'm guessing a little bit here um then move on a bit further and come the industrial revolution and suddenly you've got a whole bunch of people out there sort of challenging the church and the status quo um and wanting to do new and innovative and more creative things and all these bright people who've been held down in the organization and weren't allowed to take on more responsibility because it was beyond their station. Suddenly, we're having the opportunity to go and exercise all the talent and creativity. So it's brought us this wonderful explosion of technology and progress. Um, and you know, we've enjoyed the benefits of that for the last probably 100, 200 years, something like that. Mm. So a huge rapid expansion. Um, but again, it comes with its own problems. And what these organizations have typically done is, is viewed the world as a big machine to be conquered and understood and tweaked and re-engineered and manipulated. And a lot of our corporate language is really based around those kind of terms. It's, you know, you, you put something in, you process it and you get something out. And the, the more you can predict that, the better you can run the machine and make money. 
he gives all of these different stages colors, doesn't he, as a way of describing them. So the, the, that early kind of gang-like or very, very strictly um, tribal, hierarchical, quite violent environment would have been red. And then you get into the industrial age, more, more civilized, and we're getting into amber and then orange. And a lot of organizations that you're describing the sort of industrial age organizations were what he called orange. So as you say, a, a machine, um, if I pull this lever, this will happen. If I pull this lever, this will happen. And people are very much the cogs in that machine. So you need people to be in the machine um, because you need people to do some of the physical labor. Machines can't do it all, but you, treat them as much like parts of the machine as possible and and hope that they become as as machine-like as possible as as efficient and as process driven and all the systems if you get the systems right and you get the processes right then your people won't cause you too much trouble and they'll be quite a lot like parts of the machine right that's a nice way of putting it um and i, I think as human beings we're kind of rebelling against machine parts yeah. even, even though it's brought us a lot of you know material wealth and um, comfort really mm. um, and I can kind of see where it comes from and it's very important in this world rather than to denigrate the past is to understand where it's come from and that it's had its uses and it's then it's taken us forward and it's just leading us on to the next step because we wouldn't have jumped made that jump without it I think um, so the next stage was green which is where the organization is seen not as a machine but as a family so culture and values become a lot more important and to be fair you can see a lot of green shoots popping up across the corporate world as they've realized that if you treat people and tell them when well, you've got a job and you're lucky and get on with it they actually don't respond very well <laughs> people don't like that much <laughs> no. um, it's you can it's changed a lot from when i started but you know there's a lot of sort of people really understanding and so the whole diversity world, the equal pay world, the we're going to treat people better by in looking after it, all of that is coming in more and more and more if you look around. And I think that's to be welcomed. I suspect in some quarters it's still seen as a bit fluffy and kind of you know necessary evil. But underneath it, I think people are being appre appreciating being treated much better. But what's really exciting is what's coming next, which is the teal world. When I read the book and I was reading about green, I was thinking, well, this is all the stuff that my clients are doing. You know, the, the change programs, the culture change programs, the, um, the, the values work, what are the values of our organization, what do we stand for, um, leadership behaviors, all of this kind of stuff, uh, coaching, coaching culture, this, these kind of, um, they, they just seem like such a good idea. And they seem like they should work, but, but they don't work. And they don't work as well as they should, I guess. You know, they, they, <laughs> it all seems to make, a brilliant, make brilliant sense. But then when you're actually doing those programs, you're actually running them. They're not having the sustained effect that you thought they were going to. And also in the end, profit wins. 
So in the end, no matter how much these organizations talk about how important their people are, and they really truly believe that their people are important, they know they can't do it without their people, and they know that they need their people to go the extra mile, you know, that, that kind of language that, that is used. Even then, in the end, profit is the driver. And if you have to make a sacrifice, you will sacrifice your values, you'll sacrifice the well-being of your people in order to meet the quarterly targets. Um, and that's where those programs, when I was running a lot of those programs, I felt slightly disingenuous because I felt like this is all good and everyone really believes it, but, I, but they also know as I do that push comes to shove, the company will make cuts and damage the trust it has with people in order to meet its financial targets. We, we all know that. Yeah, I suppose the most high-profile example of that at the moment is, um, I mean, Whole Foods Markets have been one of the leaders in this world, and I describe them as being a very green organisation. Um, and they've just been bought out by Amazon. And so everyone's wondering, and no one really knows yet, whether they've sold their soul for profit at this point. I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens. Yeah. Um, one of the big problems with, with going green is that when everybody matters and everybody has a voice, um, being human beings, we tend to want to express our voice and we all want to be heard and, and all want to be listened to. And so we get bogged down in democracy and consensus. Um, and in the effort to please everybody, nothing gets done quite often. And I know, um, I won't name them, but there's an organization that's uh, been experimenting in this world and they've taken two years to decide which color carpet to put in a room because they couldn't get people to agree. And it was important that they got people to agree. And then of course, people become frustrated and the only alternative that they can think of is to go back to orange. Let's go back to a dictatorship because at least you know, somebody, can someone please decide? And so we will, we will abdicate our, our responsibility to somebody higher up in the chain and please can they just step in and make a decision because this is driving everyone nuts. So these companies do tend to kind of flip-flop <laughs> between orange and green. And when green gets too frustrating and green is too slow, people just say, can someone decide? And often there will be a person who says, Yes, I'm the kind of leader who, who is very decisive, very good at making decisions, and I'll just decide. And in some situations, we just welcome it, don't we? We just need it. Yeah. We just paralyze. Well, it's kind of back to what we know, and at least we're getting something done. When people want, you can see it in the country at the moment, at the, you know, the sort of government level, people want people to get a grip and sort it out for us. But there's something underneath that, which is about dependency for me. So it's very nice having people running around, making your life nice and looking after you. And a bit of me will take that every day of the week. But the other part of me says, do you know what I'm copping out here? And perhaps I should be standing up and perhaps I should be getting more involved in some of these organisations and taking a bit more responsibility and at least playing my part and doing what I can. And I just wonder if more people, you can see it in sort of local, you know, Grenfell Towers at the minute, loads of lovely people have turned up to help. 
So the spirit's there, isn't it? But what if that energy was applied in lots of other places, in the places where you worked, and I don't know, local government perhaps, where that energy was allowed to be used and really deployed in a kind of more focused way? I suspect we get an awful lot more done. We wouldn't run into this paralysis anymore because it wouldn't be relevant. Yeah, well, let, let's talk about what comes next then, because he obviously doesn't stop at green, and you mentioned the word teal. So this is where everyone's kind of hanging onto the edge of their chairs. What, what, what is teal? What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a colour he uses. And looking around, I want to put a sort of health warning here, because it's becoming a bit of a mantra. It's becoming almost like a bit of, like a new religion in some quarters. So I want to kind of damp that down and just invite people to see it for what it is. And if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, explore. And just kind of feel away, because it's so new. Um, I think there's a lot more to emerge yet that we haven't seen. So I'll start with there. But what teal is, really, it's primarily, I think, it's a response to a very complicated world. The technology has connected us in all kinds of ways we couldn't have imagined even 30 years ago. Um, and with that complexity, um, a lot of corporations can't cope. And so you've got lots of senior managers and executives really under a lot of stress and pressure, and they're being asked to do an impossible job. Same in government. It's, it's ridiculous that we expect them to do what they do, but we do. So the response has been, and some organisations have taken this leap, where they've realised that the kind of management hierarchies are too slow, and it's put too much pressure on too few people. And wouldn't it be nice to tap into the wisdom of everybody in the organisation and let everyone get on with it and sort of get management out of the way rather than thinking we need them to get things done. And so they've experimented. Um, I can name a few organisations. The closest one um, is in Holland, a company called Bertog. They employ about 11,500 people there. And they run that organisation without any management structure. They have a head office, I think, of about 50 people. And they're there to provide support, not to run things. So it's kind of a world that, I know our NHS is looking over the, the channel and seeing what's going on, but I'm not sure they've really understood quite what's, what's happening yet and why they're successful. And what seems to um, make these new organisations work is a number of things. First of all, they've got a very strong sense of, um, he calls it in the book, evolutionary purpose. For me, I prefer the word human purpose. It's where what the organisation is doing is uh, in some way in service to people and human beings. So it's making a, a difference in the world that we kind of want. So it's, it's, it's less about being the biggest or the best or making loads of money or dominating a market. And it's more about providing a service that people really need to help them. So there's a, a foundry company in France and, and they chose their purpose as one of the parts of their purpose to provide meaningful local employment. So they actually make a lot of money and they do very well, but um, if they weren't making money, they couldn't provide the meaningful employment. And what drives them is providing good jobs for people in their region, or part of it. So it's those kind, that kind of thinking. It's got to connect it to the heart rather than your head. So it's kind of starts there, I think. And once you've got that really clear, what you have then is a kind of guiding light around which your decision-making in an organisation and the focus of people who are there can sort of line up behind because they all know why we're in business then and what we're doing. So it replaces the five-year plan and the strategy and the mission and the vision, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to differentiate it from the mission and the vision because a lot of organizations now say that they have a purpose um, and they spend quite a lot of time and money. I mean, like I say, I've done some of this work in, in previous years. I've stopped doing it because it feels uh, wrong now. Um, but <clears throat> this kind of work of what's our purpose as a company and this, this language is bandied around within the organization but but it's meaningless because when you know in, in a lot of organizations a lot of green organizations there are a number of different tensions in the business so we're trying to satisfy our shareholders and the market we're trying to make money for our owners who might be shareholders or they might be the family that owns the business we're trying to, um, uh, and that might involve being able to exit at some point. And then mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to put our employees first. You know, our employees is very important and we put our employees first. And we're trying to make drugs that, that cure diseases or build planes that, you know, that will go faster than anyone else's plane or whatever it is. We're trying to be number one in our marketplace. So you've got a lot of different tensions plus maybe the community, we're trying to be socially responsible. What happens is that all of those different priorities pull against each other and the company will say, well, all of them are important to us and we must, we must always find a way to, to address all of them. In actual fact, what ends up happening is you can't address them all, so you pick one and that one is normally the, the financial side. Whereas what's different yeah. in real organizations is that this evolutionary purpose or this human purpose as you described it is the only thing that that defines what a good decision is so there'll still be there'll still be debate because how you go about delivering that purpose there are lots of different ways to do it and people are going to disagree about it but ultimately nothing wins over and above purpose even money and the only reason that money becomes important is we can't deliver on our purpose if we're not here so we have to be yeah. viable in order to deliver on our purpose but purpose wins every argument which is not how it works in a in a green or in an amber or orange organization i completely agree with that and the purpose becomes very important um and i think for it to be held in that level of importance because often the they'll have someone that they might call a chief executive but they're not really a chief executive in the sense that most organizations would know that word um, is to have somebody who i'm going to use that word conscious again somebody who sees the world uh, in such a way that he realizes or she realizes that, that having that purpose um, really matters and let me best way i can explain it is if you imagine that the the care and love and kindness and compassion you feel for your close family and friends. And then imagine pushing that circle out. So people within that circle, you wouldn't dream of treating badly or doing the dirty on them. If anything, there'd be a kindness and a tolerance there in terms of how you, you know, the, the relationships you have with them. But imagine being able to push that out to cover a whole company and all the customers that you have and all the suppliers that you have and all the people that are affected by your company and feel about them in the same way, then when that really feels meaningful as a heart level, 
And the idea of doing the dirty on them just wouldn't make any sense. It would be like shooting yourself in the foot or, you know, harming somebody of your close family. You have the same kind of resonance. And people who've grown to a point where that becomes meaningful, when they hold the space for a company, then purpose comes alive and it comes alive for everybody else in the organisation as well. So it kind of tracks back, and I'm making a link as you're talking, to this kind of personal development work. You have to kind of do that and be in that place if you're going to want to run an organisation or you know, take an organisation in a sort of teal direction. Because until you've done that, it'd be so easy to fall back into, you know, we've got to make a profit and everything else can go by the wayside until we do. Thank so you. Purpose, purpose is one element, but there yeah. are others as well, aren't there? Yes, um, self-management comes as a major feature. And, and for self-management to be at its sort of fully formed um, aspect, there really are no bosses. So there's no boss who will step in when they don't like what's going on and, and take control again. You really are trusted to um, take responsibility. And, and people tend to, funnily enough. I guess in most organisations, people are treated like children, albeit sort of grown-up children, perhaps. Um, but there's still a kind of parent-child relationship going on, I think, is what I see. And in two organisations, that's very much an adult-adult relationship, using some of the, um, oh, what's the word, transactional analysis. It's, yeah, it's their world, isn't it? Yes. Um, and when you treat people as adults, not surprisingly, they tend to respond as adults. So they don't do all the things that you, that children do, which is, you know, pinch things and slack off and not work and skive and all that kind of stuff. Um, it just doesn't seem to happen. It's funny, isn't it? Because I think this is the stuff that would freak most traditional managers out. I mean, first, yeah. the job that they do is unnecessary. Uh, Although I often make the point, and I think it is important, you can't just take managers out. It isn't as simple as, oh, well, just take managers out and then people will step up. They don't. It is, it is a rewiring of the way you think about yourself and your contribution to, to, your, to your job. It isn't just as simple as taking up layers of hierarchy. But I, but I think it, it freaks people out more than just because it threatens their, their own job. I think that we... we we all have experiences where we gave someone some rope, <laughs> you know, we gave them an inch and yeah. a smile, where we, where we tried to delegate responsibility to people and they didn't step up into the space, um, where we trusted somebody and they let us down. And, and because most of us have got experiences of that, when you start talking about self-managing system and people will behave as adults, the risk feels very great that they yeah. won't even though all the evidence in the book is that they do but you know there are lots of reasons why anyone in an organization would say well it might have worked there but it wouldn't work here we've got too many blue collar workers and they just they just need to be told what to do or what do you do if people just just come to work and like to be told what to do they're just those sorts of people there are some people you can empower and other people you can't empower but what do you do if people take advantage of the system? Or what do you do if people can't decide? Surely you need someone to step in. Or what, how can people make decisions? They need a huge amount of information in order to make decisions for themselves. And that would be overwhelming to a lot of people. So we make decisions for them. This is all the stuff that... that <laughs> yeah. 
And I think they're really valid um, criticisms, complaints, observations, whatever word you want to use. Um, the companies that have made this work um, is that there's a track back to that idea we spoke about earlier about holding space as a leader rather than being in charge necessarily. And so this is really going to test the leader's ability to hold space. When someone does fall off the perch and lets you down, it's what do I do about it? Do I step in because I can't tolerate the mistake any longer? Or do I find a way to help them get back on the perch again? And I can't answer that question for any organisation, but there's something there, isn't there, about your willingness to kind of go with this and experiment. And also the organisations that have gone down this route have spent a lot of time and money um, training people to understand what this new world's going to be like. So they learn things like how to sort out conflicts between themselves, how to share what's on their mind in an open way without upsetting other people, and things like that. So the investment part of it, it pays back, you know, I don't know how many fold time, but a lot of times afterwards, but you have to put that in at first because people aren't there yet. And so it's so strange. It is a personal development um, journey isn't it because so when I think about the work that I do and most of the work that I'm doing is in non-teal organizations in kind of greenish organizations yeah. um, so they are the, the leaders I'm working with are working in quite a conventional environment what I hope that we're doing in our work is is future proof in the sense that we're we're treating them as leaders as if they were as if they could bring their whole person personality to work as if they could really um, be in a situation of creating the space so we're even though they're operating within quite a conventional environment the approach that we're both taking myself and the client to leadership is something that would enable teal to emerge later yeah i think what 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 this is <laughs> is oh well let's go teal you know it's not a restructure it's not a it's not a system that we're going to impose it really is a, a mindset attitude and you almost need to have made that shift in your mindset and attitude i think this is what i'm saying really you, you need to have made that shift first before you can even conceive of teal yeah i think there's two things one for you as an individual um it's almost it's changing your whole sense of being I, I was the tutor on the counselling course. I did said that to me. He said, "If you come on this course and, and you want to counsel in a person-centred way, if you do it properly, it will change your whole way of being. You will be different with people. They will some will like it and some won't. You know, but you'll be different. And this is exactly the same. It's not something you can that technique you can deploy and go ahead and be orange. You have to be teal all for the whole of your life if you get it. It's a kind of lifelong commitment, and it'll take you onto other places as well." Um, and I don't think, I think once you get teal, I don't think you can become unteal. <laughs> I think it's a kind of, it's like riding a bike. Once you learn, you can't really forget. Um, so there's that part of it. And then on a very practical note, um, if you're in an organisation, unless the owners or the family or the shareholders, whoever the, the, the people who are right at the top of the organisation um, kind of get it too, you're probably going to find things very difficult if you want to get going. So if you're a managing director with a great idea and you've got a family owners who don't want to play ball, you're probably going to have to find somewhere else to practice, I think. Yeah. 
So we've talked about evolutionary purpose and we've talked about self-management and there's a third element as well, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Um, this whole idea of wholeness. Um, what, he, what he means by that is that people can turn up at work as themselves rather than uh, as a kind of shadow corporate version of themselves. So the idea that you would leave your emotions at home, which is what most companies would expect, just as unacceptable in a tier organization. So if something's that you know, you're upset about something or you've got trouble at home, whether it's family problems or whatever it is, people are able to deal with that and will help you through. If it means that you need a bit of TLC for a while, then that's kind of what you get. It also translates into the things that people are good at. They have the opportunity to um, work in those areas. So people tend to have roles rather than jobs. And so if you like working with numbers and you've got a background in marketing, you could end up doing a bit of marketing work and also a bit of work with the finance team. And these organizations are flexible enough to allow that to happen. Um, and we haven't mentioned this part yet, but it's easy to think of them as being very kind of happy, go lucky, friendly, warm, amorphous type organizations. And they're far from that. They're very structured, they're very organized, the processes are very well thought through. They're just very different to what we expect to see in the corporate world today. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a few things there that people, um, that people assume uh, wrongly. The, the first is, I mean, we've talked about consensus before, but um, in teal organizations, they're just not consensus driven. No. So with your role or roles, and as you say, people will often have multiple roles, so each of those roles is very self-contained and um, and whole in itself. There's not there's not very much blurring of the lines between who owns what decision. Consequently, if you have a particular role and a set of decision-making powers come with that role, those are your decisions to make, aren't they? And you don't need to get buy-in or consensus. You don't need to to seek. Um, people's agreement in order to make your decision that what you what you will almost certainly want to do is to get um, get advice yep. and to know how your decision is going to impact other roles but ultimately it's your decision to make and and I've been in this situation so I was in a role play um, for a, a, a holacracy a holacracy um, session that we were doing for a day and uh, a decision that came up was not didn't sit with my role, it sat with someone else's role. And in the role play, even in the role play, I felt the emotion rising that I should at least be allowed to express my opinion, even if it wasn't going to be my decision in the end. But I was told very clearly by the facilitator, no, you're not even allowed to say what your opinion is because it, it, it doesn't affect your role and therefore your opinion is irrelevant and it's not your decision to make. And the funny thing was about it is that in that moment, I both had this very visceral reaction, like, I want to be heard. So that was on the one hand. And on the other hand, I thought, well, this is really cool because when it's my decision, I'll be able to make it. And mm. I won't need to listen to everyone around this table with their opinions when it isn't their role and it's none of their business. So, so there's one of the things that, that I think we can let go of in this teal organization is this idea of consensus, which does make for a more rough and tumble organization. 
because it isn't about everyone's going to be happy. There are going to be situations where you've made a decision and not everyone likes it and it's none of their business. Yes, and I, I did a holacracy taste today too, so I kind of had similar reactions. I felt cut off and sort of treated like a, a bit abruptly, actually. Yes, yeah, it was rough. It, it was rough. Rough. Um, in this tier world, you've got to look, look at the rounded picture as well. And what I think's going on, and I haven't worked in a tier organisation, I've worked in leaderless groups, which is the closest I've got. Um, and as I kind of once you've got the purpose to guide you, then you trust people to make the decisions that line up with the purpose and for the best interests of the organisation. Now, if they're not doing that, they've usually got a process for calling them back into account, so they can't wander too far off script. And for most people, they don't even they don't probably don't want to wander off script because you get team dynamics at play. So if I've got to answer to you and look you in the eyes and tell you what I've done, and I know darn well I've done something that's probably not very good. Then there's a whole sort of guilt, guilt's not terribly helpful, but you know what I mean. There's a kind of real holding to account. So if we're going to work together and we're actually part of a team and I believe in you and you believe in me and we all feel part of the same thing, then why would I do something which is, I know is going to make your life hard or difficult unnecessarily? Yeah. So it kind of self-corrects, I think. Yeah, particularly because of the purpose. You know, yeah. We are all, and it's different to saying, oh, well, everyone is facing the same direction on the bus. It isn't that. No. It's really at a heart level believing in this purpose and the reason that you would work in this organization is because that purpose is something that resonates with you and and which brings me I guess to another question which is so I, I know organizations that are now moving more towards self-management having been very conventionally industrial age hierarchical mm. And one of the questions that was asked of me about that was, well, how, how can we do that when there will be thousands, tens of thousands in the case of this organization of people who didn't join the business for those reasons? The business looked this very conventional hierarchical way. And now we're saying, oh yeah, we're gonna be all self-managing and we really need people to, to, to you know, get on board with, with this. Mm. You know, they don't believe necessarily in this new purpose and they didn't join because they wanted to be in a teal organization. Can you, can you do that to people? Can you successfully evolve or revolutionize from green to teal? Hmm, uh, what I can really, I guess the best example is the most public example is what's happening with a company called Zappos in the States in California. Uh, their boss, I've never pronounced his name, Tony Shea, um, has taken on board Holacracy. He's introduced it to his company. He was doing very well as it was before Holacracy came along, but he really is trying to embody and embrace the whole teal movement. Um, Reports would say, and I think this is true, that when people come to join, they go through a sort of six-week induction to explain to them how the company operates when they're coming in new. And at that stage, if it's not right for them, they're offered $2,000 to move on and go. Yeah. On the basis that probably it's, it's cheaper to let them go at that stage than let them come in and cause a whole bunch of disruption. But when you read the sort of various articles, um, a lot of people internally have kind of gone with, a, they've kind of gone with it so far seem to be sort of balking at being forced into these kind of 
different routines and different procedures and not knowing where they stand and not knowing who's in charge. So I'm not there, so I don't know. But I suspect if you try and force people too fast into this new world, they're probably going to push back, which in a way is a sign of adult maturity and growing up and wanting to be who you are. And so if I was in that situation, um, rather than saying, well, I'm right, so I need to make sure it happens, I probably want to back off a little bit and just find out what's happening and listen and work out with the collective intelligence of the people around how we're going to move on given what we're trying to do. So I haven't got a formula, but I think there is something about that listening and holding and being willing to kind of go at the pace that feels right rather than forcing it from A to B quickly. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. And, and in the organisation that I'm thinking of, um, they're not imposing self-management because actually, of course, you can't really, I mean, slightly goes against, no. slightly goes against the whole concept. Um, but but um, they are encouraging and they are providing people with some of the self-development and some of the opportunities to experiment with more of a, more of a teal way of working. In the end, though, you know, it is going to be the sort of place where if you don't like self-management, you're not going to like it there. And, and in the end, I suspect that you would have to go somewhere else. And, and, and in a way, so I've worked with this organization, I don't want to name them, of course, but I've worked with them for a long time, 13, 14 years, and I've seen them change hugely over that time. And looking at their competitor base, they will not be relevant in future unless they do something as radical as this. Mm. You cannot be complacent because their competition is going to come from little upstarty teal companies that are able to move really fast and innovate really quickly and break themselves apart and reshape themselves as they need, as, as demands uh, change. There, there simply isn't much choice but for them to do this. So, if there are people who really, really dig their heels in and say, I refuse, they're probably going to end up leaving. Yes, and there's a very interesting point that brings up for me, which is, um, you know, in our current world, we've got a whole sort of legal framework and employment law framework, which these new organisations don't really fit into very neatly. Mm. So if you decided to completely change your company and redesign your, well, they talk about a job, wouldn't they, in that regard? you can easily get into the whole world of constructive dismissal if you're not careful. Um, and I think these kind of, these are kind of, I call them teething problems. Um, there's been a lot of work at a legal level about ownership structures and how those fit in. Um, certainly in the States, and I think over here as well, you know, owners of companies have a, not owners of companies, but the people managing have a responsibility to maximize return to shareholders, which really doesn't fit with a teal ethos. So creating legal vehicles and a legal framework that actually works with this new world is coming, but probably isn't there yet. But I agree with you, if people don't want to go, um, there probably isn't a place for them. And I guess it only becomes difficult if they decide they're gonna stick their heels in and not move on. So um, we're, we're kind of, there's so many things that we could talk about related to Teal and, and we could really get, get into it. And I, I, I really encourage people to go and read the book and to get yeah. involved in, in some of the communities around around this because it's it is in one way very simple. It's about it's about saying the industrial hierarchical command and control 
way of working um, may not be producing the kind of outputs that companies need to be producing. We, we, they may no longer be getting the most from the people that work within them at yeah. a time when companies really need to if they're going to remain relevant. So it starts from there and it says, so maybe that industrial model is, is kind of coming to an end or maybe there is something beyond that looks quite different and maybe it looks like this. So in, in one way, it's quite simple. In another way, it, it really messes with your head because we're so hardwired to operate in this very competitive, um, individualistic, uh, work your way up the hierarchy, uh, sort of so many things in, in the way that we're educated and the way that we progress through our careers that we would have to let go of, that that, that is probably what messes with your head a bit when you, when you first start thinking about it. it it's completely countercultural to everything that we've been taught and brought up with. Um, and I've got two teenage boys at the moment and they look at me when I talk about this stuff and they just say, Dad, you know, you haven't got a clue. The world's like this. And it's very clear what the world is like to them. And um, I'm a bit surprised, actually. I'm, I feel more left-wing than them, whereas in my dad, he was certainly far more right-wing than I was. So the roles have been reversed. So it is countercultural. And yet, when you give people the opportunity to thrive and grow, um, they generally take it. And I think there's kind of two, like a vice squeezing in at the minute on the way we do things. So from the bottom, these people wanting to wake up and to be more, to be themselves, to be who they are, um, in all kinds of different ways, and to be valued and recognised for that. And so standard jobs don't necessarily do that very well. And from the top, things are getting so connected and moving so quickly and they're so complex that the way we organise just is, is not struggling to cope. So there's some real pressures that Teal is a response to. It's not just a, a fluffy way to be. It's actually an effective way to respond to the way the world is changing. And so if the world carries on changing like that, I suspect the ones that want to stick at orange are probably just going to get left behind because they won't be able to be fleet of foot enough. And they won't be able to, and you can see it, can't you? Um, <clears throat> a good example would be Kodak and the film. They just didn't see digital cameras coming. And they're gone, pretty much, haven't they? Yeah. Nokia, lots of big examples. Yeah. So in one way, we're right at the beginning of this revolution. If you think about how long it took for industrial models to, to become ubiquitous, um, it was a good couple of hundred years, probably longer. So we're, we're just at the beginning of this. But it, is there anything beyond teal? Oh, yes. This is where it gets, uh, I could use the word spiritual or esoteric. Um, it's, I suppose if you, if you took a Buddhist master, you know, um, you got this image in my mind of a monk sitting with his legs crossed, dispensing wisdom and being very wise and talking about grasshoppers and things like that. Um, but in a way, their calmness and their sense of peace and their groundedness in the world, they look around at all the things that we do and wonder why we're doing them and why we're suffering. And I think when we get to that higher level, um, I'm not suggesting we all go sit around in orange robes and just sort of be, but there's a sense of uh, understanding at a much bigger scale than most people currently do why we're here and what the world's about. And um, so very simply, it could be the idea that 
I say people are mind, body and soul. Most people will kind of get that. But the journey of the soul and why we're here and our growth and our relationship to other people and maybe the idea that we are really all connected and what would that feel like if it became a real felt sense rather than our differences, which is what we see at the moment. And how would we organise a world if we looked at it really from that point of view? I think that's where we will head. But it's going to take a little bit longer yet. Yeah, so um, in, in previous shows and previous interviews, I've talked with, with people and shared some of my own thoughts about some of the practices that are currently thought of as pretty woo-woo, you know, <laughs> pretty yeah. out there, um, compared with what is acceptable in a conventional business environment. But that actually, if some of these practices and some of these concepts and I know you, you're interested in some of this stuff as well is starting to become just I wouldn't say I wouldn't go so far as to say mainstream but people are starting to talk a little more about their spiritual practice or about quantum theory or about what, what's what's beyond the very conscious way of operating that maybe we can't explain but doesn't just because we can't explain it doesn't mean it's magic. Yes. And let me use the, the idea of purpose to kind of illustrate that a little bit. So some ideas I've been exploring. Um, it's a bit like when you go to a big concert or a, a big match, there's an atmosphere in the ground or the stadium or the concert hall, which is definitely there, isn't it? It's something that you can relate to and you can feel, be swept along by. And I guess you know, that must be being created by uh, the energy of the people who come. And so I've seen it as that, that atmosphere has almost got an independent existence. And it's made up of all the little bits of our energy that, that sort of choose to play in that space. So what we've created is something that's independent of us, but at the same time, completely dependent on us. So it's kind of both. And these paradoxes often sort of pop up in this way of thinking. And so if you translate that into an organization and talk about purpose, what, what Frederick Lalu talks about in the teal world is they'll, they'll think about an organization as a living organism, a living entity, if you like, having its own consciousness and therefore its own purpose that we can tune into and listen to. So it's less about the, the thoughts of a few wise people at the top and more about, well, we're looking after an organization here that's got its own life and, and how can we help it get to where it needs to be? And if you want to get really a bit weird and wacky, then you can bring in higher beings and, you know, angels, divas, whatever the word is, that come in and maybe have an interest in what's going on as well and contribute and support as a kind of level that we can't see most of the time. So this is probably why I'm losing people and I appreciate that. But um, it's, there's a whole world out there that uses some of this language. All I'm doing is linking it together, really. Um, and so if that was, that was how it was, then there's something there that in organisations, you could have a practice, and they do in tier ones, where people deliberately kind of try and tune into and listen to what their organisation wants and is trying to say and where it wants to go. And using that as a very uh, alive source of information. Yeah, I, I think, you know, my initial um, feeling about this, this kind of stuff some years ago was, I mean, I remember saying when I was training as a coach, well, I'm not spiritual. 
I'm not spiritual. And, um, and other people felt that that wasn't true for me, but I, that's how I felt like I, I work in the, in the world of science, you know, and that is what makes sense. And, and that's where I operate. Actually, what's happened over the years is that it's not that I now believe in angels and um, spirit guides and it's not that. Um, it, it's just that I'm not afraid of people believing in it. So yeah. I, I, I acknowledge that there, are, there have to be things that we cannot yet understand. There are, we know there are. We know that when we put certain energy out into the world, it has an effect. We know that we can attract to us situations or life experiences through our own energy. Um, we feel connected with people that we don't even know. What, you know, how, how do you expect, and disconnected from people, you know, really uh, having a sort of a, an initial feeling against someone that we've never met and we would have no reason other than something we can't understand to explain it. Um, and, and so I wonder if from a leadership perspective, it's not so much that leaders today have got to become more spiritual and have got to tap into a, a bunch of stuff that seems kind of woo woo to give it a bit of a label. Um, but that, that at least to open up their minds to the possibility that there might be stuff we don't understand and it's okay. I mean, there's two things there I'd say, which might make it a bit more normal. Um, and if you come across a guy called William Bloom? No, no, I haven't. He's been working in the kind of spiritual world for a long time, and he's very grounded. And he divides this kind of what we call spirit onto three camps broadly. There's kind of the alternative healing. There's the metaphysical then, which is kind of spirits and ghosts and all that kind of stuff. And then there's what he calls the sort of the why we're here or the wonder of meaning of life. And so for me, I think a lot of for businesses, it's about the wonder of why we're here and the meaning of life and why are all these people doing in my organization and what do they want and what's, what's right for their growth and their development. And as soon as you do that, then it's very hard for me anyway, not to think about it in terms of energy. So we can all go into a room and sense when people are happy or sad. We pick it up really quickly. On one-to-one, -one, you know, with my partners, we go back and we, we know what's going on pretty quickly. And when I was married, you know, the case of you should know what I'm feeling was kind of thrown at me quite a lot. <laughs> um, and I, I probably, I'm aware of it now, but I wasn't then. Um, I changed a bit. So those things are all, as you said earlier, they're all kind of floating around. And if, if leaders thought about it in terms of just being energetically sensitive, that would open up all kinds of doors and interest and was like intuition and, and all of those words which we're kind of shying away from would become acceptable and they probably are actually for lots of people to be honest. I suspect that that they are and that people haven't been talking about them um, and all it takes is a few figures that we trust and respect to start talking about their spiritual practice or as they often do their meditation practice yeah. um, I know CEOs that go away on spiritual retreat. I, I met a guy not very long ago who spends a month every winter in silent contemplation in a monastery. Um, and that's how he reconnects with himself. Um, you know, and I think as, these, as people that we trust and respect start talking about what they do, 
to feel connected to themselves and to the world, it will, it will open up more of a conversation, I think. And, and maybe that's an inevitable part of this move to Teal, that that, that must start happening for, for organisations to unpick themselves from this very profit-driven, very status-focused way of operating. And that raises the lovely thought of all these people having these experiences, but having no one to share them with. And wouldn't it be nice to sort of find some way to just make it okay for people to come together and share these things and not um, be judged or laughed at? Yeah, and, and why wouldn't work be the place? I think that one of the things that we've done is we've separated work and life, and therefore, why would you do that stuff at work? You know, I do that with my real friends outside of work. But actually, if we, if we rethink work as part of life and as a way that we a way that we bring our humanity a way that we bring meaning to our lives then work and life don't have this distinction so of course we would bring we work for meaning we work in order to feel connected we work in order to make a, a positive impact in the world and and we work to feel human and therefore we would bring our humanity and we would talk about yeah and how we were in the workplace we wouldn't have this fake um this fake barrier that says that's work and this is home and the two are, are distinct for me yeah and that's the classic difference between an orange machine view of the world and a teal um wholeness view of the world i completely agree with you we have relationships with people that work as much as they do at home i don't mean sort of you know jumping into bed but just the way we react and deal with problems and issues and conflict and all of that is just as valid at work and needs all of us to be there just as much as it does at home i think we're in the same place there definitely <laughs> well thank you i i hope that um that people who've been listening to this have have come along with us on this, <laughs> on this windy journey to where we've ended up thank you so much for for joining me today and having this really really fascinating conversation Thank you, Blair. I really enjoyed it too. It's, um, it's a pleasure for me to share some of these, my thinking and some of these thoughts and you've been a great host and thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. I loved hearing it again. I did a, a little tiny bit of editing with it and, uh, and I really loved hearing it all again. There's lots to inspire you, I think, and, and provoke new thinking. I am back next week. I am going to take a break with the podcasts over August, but there are still a couple more shows before that. So between now and then, please do stay in touch. Please sign up to the newsletter. And with information about how to do that, here's the lovely Ivy Palmer. To sign up for our newsletter filled with free resources and a prompt question or idea to help you see yourself and your work in a new light. Go to www.thatpeoplething.com and scroll to the bottom of any page. Leadership is changing! By sharing this podcast, you can help transform the way companies run and help business become a force for good in the world. Let's encourage more leaders to reveal the punk underneath their suit. Just hands, hug!